0: Thanks, Mike. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us this morning at the Parkway Church. Uh, we'll be in Romans 8, 12 through 17, as Mike just read. So Zach in Theological Equipping mentioned homeowners association. So just a quick show of hands. Raise your hand if you live in a neighborhood that you have an HOA. All right. Now keep your hand up if, keep your hand up if you've ever gotten a letter of some sort from your HOA. All right. So there's at least a few people who can relate to the following uh, story that I am going to tell. I'm going to be honest. I am terrified of my HOA. All right. I have no idea who they are and yet they uh, wield this sort of sovereign power. They're super secretive, and yet they're super powerful, kind of like the Illuminati or the IRS or something like that. And, uh, and so I'm actually I'm just terrified of them. At any moment, I feel like I'm going to get a letter. Now, my HOA is very, very strict when it comes to different regulations and violations and those kind of things, but they're also fairly gracious and generous whenever you write them back and ask for an extension. I mention the fact that they're generous in case any of you are actually in my HOA and I don't know it, or in case they're listening. I assume they're always listening to everything. <laughs> so um, I have gotten a, a few uh, letters. I try to stay off their radar. I'm not doing a very good uh, job. My first time to ever get a letter was because I had a palm tree in my front yard, Uh, which I did not think fit. And I got a letter for taking it out of the yard, even though I thought I was doing them a favor. We live in McKinney. This is not Miami. There's nothing particularly coastal or tropical about my neighborhood. And so I assumed I was doing the neighborhood a favor, but apparently taking out that palm tree was just absolutely taboo. And so I got a letter saying, either you replace the tree or you will face the wrath of the tree police. And, uh, and so, that was my first letter. Since then, I've gotten a few different letters uh, for mostly just kind of aesthetic things re- related to my house. Most often, though, my uh, letters are related to weeds. Weeds are kind of like my arch nemesis, and, uh, and so I hate weeds. Weeds. I try to get rid of the weeds in my yard. I try to get rid of the weeds in my driveway. I try to get rid of the weeds in uh, my sidewalks. And, uh, and they're just like that whack-a-mole game at uh, Chuck E. Cheese. I pull up one and another one just pops up and kind of grins at me and laughs. And, uh, and so that's kind of my perpetual struggle. Now, it, in a sense, it would be really easy to get rid of all of the weeds. I could just burn my lawn. I could pour gasoline on the whole thing. I could just completely uproot the entire lawn, put down astroturf, put down uh, fake rocks and bushes, get an inflatable palm tree, since that's what we're going for in my neighborhood. Uh, I'd probably get a letter regardless. But uh, the challenge, so getting rid of weeds is easy, but the challenge is how do you get rid of weeds without also getting rid of the good grass? And as that's the challenge when it comes to lawn care, that's also the challenge of this particular sermon, especially when we read a passage as we begin in, uh, in this text that says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Some of us might hear that and not take it seriously at all. Some of us might come to church, we might try to give, live a good life, but we really don't love Jesus. We really haven't ever been regenerated. We've never really been born again. And so the fact, though, that we come to church and we try to give a live, live a good life, we think we have nothing to fear from this passage. Those people, if that's any of us in this room, those are weeds that need to be uprooted. But others, on the other hand, they might really love Jesus and yet they hear this passage. And they feel condemnation and shame and discouragement as a result of this passage. Because of this lingering sin in their lives, they think maybe it's talking about me when it says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And so how is it, how can we, uh, at the same time, how can we kind of uproot weeds of apathy and presumption without also uprooting the grass, the meadows, the pastures of assurance that Romans 8 is going to um, kind of plant for us. And I think that's only going to be possible by grace. And so I want to ask that we just begin in a word of prayer for God to be gracious to us this morning. As I often do, I want to ask just for you yourself to pray for yourself this morning that the Lord would give you an undivided and undistracted heart and mind And then will you pray that for those around you as well, that the Lord would meet us collectively and corporately. And then lastly, would you pray for me, for boldness and faithfulness. So Father, we're grateful for an opportunity to examine this passage this morning with uh, so many rich and profound truths for us And I pray that uh, we might be encouraged, that we might be edified, that if there is anyone in this room uh, who uh, needs to feel deep conviction that they would do it, Lord, that by your Spirit you would grant that, but that uh, we would not be discouraged or feel condemned. We ask these things because you're good and you desire good things for your children. So we ask in Christ's name, amen. We'll begin in Romans 8, 12 through 13, which says, so, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So notice we begin with this uh, phrase, so then. Our text doesn't just f- kind of float freely in space. It's built into a particular context that we've been talking about over the past few weeks in chapter 6 and 7, the beginning of chapter 8. In particular, in chapter 8, we've seen that believers have been set free, that we've been set free from sin, we've been set free from death, we've been set free from the Mosaic law. So, as a result of this freedom, we're now able, we're enabled, we're free to walk in obedience to the will of God because we're constituted by, we're identified by, we're indwelt by the Spirit and not the flesh. So, in light of all of that, he writes verses 12 through 13. That's the context. And we begin with this statement on debt, which is kind of confusing in, uh, in at least this particular English translation. He says, We are debtors, not to the flesh. I think you could have just translated that as, We are not debtors to the flesh. That's kind of the general idea. When I was in college, I signed up for one of these uh, music CD clubs. Anyone ever uh, participated in one of those things? This is one of those things where you basically give them a certain amount of money per week uh, or per month, uh, say it's $10 or $15 a month or whatever it is, and they send you the CD of the month, whether you actually like that artist or band or whatever it is or not. And uh, if you don't like it, all you have to do is just take that CD and mail it back. But as a college student, they knew I was never going to actually mail anything back. That's how I ended up with Celine Dion and Kenny G and all those kind of things in my case logic because I was so lazy that I never would actually send anything back. Well, eventually, my greed overcame my laziness, and I realized I'm wasting hundreds of dollars here uh, on this uh, music club getting CDs that I don't, I don't actually care about. And so eventually, I canceled my contract, at which point I was no longer under any obligation to them. I don't remember who it was, BMG or Columbia House or something like that. I was no longer under any obligation to that company. The contract had been canceled. That's what this text is implying, that your contract with sin has been canceled. We've talked about that over and over and over again in chapter six and seven, that you've been bought out of your contract with sin. Your debt has been paid, so you no longer owe the flesh anything except hostility and enmity and war. We have no abiding obligation to sin or the flesh except that we might kill it. That's what this passage is saying. Imagine if I had canceled my contract with that music club, and then I continued to send them $15 a month or whatever it is, How absurd and illogical that would have been. Well, this text is saying it's just as absurd, just as illogical for us who have had our contract with sin canceled to continue to live as if we are still in the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. I want us all to take a deep breath. I want us to feel for a second the weight of this statement. If you live according to the flesh, you will die die. What's at stake here is eternal life and eternal death. This is eschatological life and death. This is not just temporal life, like whenever your heart stops or your brain stops or your lungs stop or something like that. How do we know that? Because even faithful believers are going to die. So that's not what Paul is saying, that if you live according to flesh, you will die. Everybody dies in that sense. No, this is talking about judgment. This is talking about condemnation. This is talking about damnation. So does this mean that genuine believers can be condemned? Is that what he's saying there? If you, as a genuine believer, live according to the flesh, you will die. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul isn't talking about Christians who sin, whenever he says those who live according to the flesh. When he uses this phrase, those who live according to the flesh, in Romans 8... He's using it to uh, relate to those who are identified according to the flesh, those who are in Adam as opposed to those who are in Christ. We saw these two teams, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ in Romans chapter 5, and so we see this sort of idea come up again here. He's talking not about those who are Christians who sin, he's talking about those who are still in sin. Those who are still under the rule and reign of sin. By the way, you know what you call Christians who struggle with sin? Christians. That's all of us. Every single one of us. So that's not what Paul is talking about here. He isn't saying that a genuine believer who just struggles with sin can be or will be condemned or will lose their salvation. But he is saying that genuine believers won't live this way. They will sin, but they won't live according to the flesh. Indeed, they can't live this way. If you live this way, whatever it means here when he says live according to the flesh, if you live this way, it's a sign that something is wrong, and you should have no confidence whatsoever that you are in the Spirit if you're not living according to the Spirit. You should have no confidence whatsoever if you're not walking according to the Spirit. If you have no love for Jesus... No hatred for sin, no growing love for the church, for worship, for, the Bible, uh, for Bible study, for prayer. If none of these things are in you, if you're kind of just going through the motions, playing Christianity, playing church, those are all really, really bad signs that maybe you're not who you think you are. But if you hate your sin, even though you struggle with it, I'm not talking about you in this passage. Paul's not talking about you in this passage. The first part of this passage, when it says those who live according to the flesh will die, the first part of this passage is about your fundamental relationship to sin. Are you still in slavery? Are you still defined by your relationship to sin? Are you still identified by your relationship to sin? Those who live according to the flesh, those who are indifferent toward or even hospitable toward sin— thus demonstrate that they don't share in the spirit because the spirit and the flesh oppose each other violently. So those who live according to the flesh will face eternal death. But he goes on from there and he says, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will Live. The Puritans used the word mortification to de, de, de kind of describe this idea. When we use the word mortify today, it kind of means embarrass or humiliate, but that's not the original meaning. The original meaning is similar to like the word mortuary uh, or a mortician, uh, it means to put to death, to kill. So that's what he's saying here that we are to mortify, that we are to kill, that we are to put to death the, remain, the remaining impulses of sin. No one wrote on this topic of mortification, by the way, with the clarity and the brilliance uh, of John Owen. In fact, one of his most classic works uh, is called uh, called On the Mortification of Sin in uh, Believers. And one of its most famous lines is, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Think all the way back to Romans chapter 6. In that we saw this idea that we have died to sin. If we're no longer in the flesh, if we are in Christ, then we have died to sin. Romans 6, 1-2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So we've died to sin, and therefore we are to put it to death. The fact that you have died to sin theologically in Romans chapter 6 doesn't in any way negate or deny your responsibility to put sin to death in Romans chapter 8. In fact, the fact that you have died to sin is what empowers you and enables you to actually put sin to death. It's what makes it possible. As we've already mentioned before, Paul is not intending to, to give two different ways that uh, believers may live. Some super saints, some uh, you know, Billy Graham types or something like that, they put sin to death, but the rest of us, just the average sort of amateur Christians or kind of normal Christians, we don't really put sin to death. That's not at all his point. In fact, that's the opposite of Paul's point. He's describing two entirely different types of people, those who are in Christ and thus walk according to the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh, versus those who are in Adam and walk according to the flesh and satisfy the desires of sin. Paul's saying, if you are a Christian, if you have died to sin, you have a responsibility to put sin to death. Sin is never truly satisfied. Never satiated. It's always yearning. It's always craving. It's always lusting for more. There's no surrender when it comes to sin. There's no treaty or truce. The only response for you and for me is to kill it. Now notice here the obligation that you have. The responsibility that you have. The text says that you do something. You put sin to death. Grammatically, the word you is the subject of the verb put to death. You have a responsibility to resist against sin. You have a responsibility to rebel against sin, to mortify it. This isn't something that just accidentally happens while you're sitting around eating Cheetos, playing Fortnite, or watching The Bachelor, whatever it might be. This is something that you must actively, intentionally, passionately, violently, purposefully pursue. When it comes to sin, there is no Christian passivism or passivity. You must kill it. How you do it is incredibly important. We're going to get to that in a second. But first, I just want you to notice that you have a responsibility and an obligation to do this. If you do not do this, it means you are not pursuing obedience. And you might not even be a believer. You have a responsibility and obligation to do this. And by grace, because you've already died to sin, you have the opportunity to do this. Unbelievers cannot do this. Unbelievers cannot submit. We saw that uh, a few verses back. But you can if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And not only can you, but you must. You will not drift into godliness. Now we're going to get to the how, but first I want to talk about the when. Two things to note as it relates to when. When do you put sin to death? First, that this is an ongoing, lifelong command. This is an obligation that you will have until the day that you die. You are killing sin until you yourself are killed. You know how in in a thriller, if you're ever watching some sort of uh, thriller, not like the Michael Jackson video, but like a movie in a thriller, when the killer is never really dead, you shot him five times, you drop this huge anvil on his head, he fell 10 stories off a building onto some sort of stake, and he's impaled on it, and yet somehow, by the time you get to him, he jumps up. Not only is he still alive, but he also still has the sort of energy to be able to attack you. That's kind of the image of sin here. Sin is mortally wounded, and yet it's still enabled to strike out at you. So don't worry when it comes to killing sin about beating a dead horse. You are to kick it over and over and over and over again. Every single day of your life, you're killing sin. There's no one in this room who's graduated from or outgrown this command to kill sin. When you're 80 years old, when you're 100 years old, you are still to do this duty of killing sin. That's the first part, that this is an ongoing, lifelong pursuit for us. Second, as it relates to when, just a practical hint, and that is to do it before it begins to take root. Right now, if you were to go out and you were to look in uh, the older part of our building in the courtyard there, there is a weed that has grown up in the courtyard, and it kind of resembles the beanstalk that Jack climbed. I feel really sorry for whichever one of our deacons has to take on that redwood because it is not… I don't know which way it's going to go. We might lose a deacon in that process. But imagine if that deacon would have tried to take that on a year ago, or two years ago, or a hundred years ago, which is when I assumed it actually began to grow, it would have been a whole lot easier. The same is true when it comes to this responsibility that we have to put sin to death. One of the most helpful, practical pieces of advice I ever got as it relates to mortification, as it relates to sanctification, is uh, to confess the small stuff before it becomes the big stuff. It is so much easier easier for you to call up a buddy and to say, hey, I'm tempted towards this thing, than it is for you to call up a buddy and say, hey, man, I just dove straight into the sin yet again. If you're already indulging in some sort of sinful activity, you're already uh, addicted to pornography, you're already addicted to wine, you're already whatever it is, if you're already blowing up at your spouse, all those kind of things, by all means, confess it now. But the time to really confess it is long before it takes root. You see, if you confess the little seed, then it never actually begins to take root. So confess the small stuff before it becomes the big stuff. And you might find that in doing so, it never actually becomes big stuff. By pulling up the seed of sin early, it never has a chance to take root. So putting sin to death is something that you must do. It's a lifelong process, and you must do it regularly, immediately, passionately, violently, purposefully, but you must also do it by the Spirit. Even more than you need to hear that this is your responsibility, and you do need to hear that this is your responsibility, but even more than that, you need to hear that you are utterly dependent on grace for this you are utterly dependent on God's Spirit for this. God sanctifies you. You don't sanctify yourself. Some of you hear me say that you have to kill sin, and you instantly engage your mind towards legalism or moralism, which is just another sin, and you can't fight one sin with another sin. Killing sin is a bit like Uh, plugging something into an electrical outlet, that outlet provides 100% of the energy and electricity. You don't provide any electricity. You don't provide any energy for that thing uh, to run whatsoever. Likewise with sanctification, God provides all of the grace, all of the mercy, all of the energy, all of the electricity. God provides 100%. Sanctification isn't 50-50. And most of us would agree with that, but I think a lot of us think that it's 90-10. And I'm telling you, sanctification isn't 90-10. It's 100% God's grace. You don't sanctify yourself. You merely plug yourself in. Into what? Into the various electrical outlets that God has provided. Bible reading, communion, community, confession of sin, Worship, baptism, prayer, fasting, and so forth. The best that we can do is posture ourselves wherever it is that God has promised to move. And you know what biblically we find out? Is that even our posturing ourselves in that place is itself God's grace to us. Philippians 2 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Even your desire to posture yourself is owing entirely to to God's grace. So don't confuse your role of posturing yourself with God's role of empowering and sanctifying you. You will not grow in godliness. You will not grow in holiness unless you plug yourself in. But even that is by grace. We all know that there's a right and wrong way to kill weeds. Mowing over them with a lawnmower doesn't kill them. It just makes them angrier. Well, as there is a right and wrong way to kill weeds, so there's a right and wrong way to mortify sin. And the only right way to do it is by the Spirit. John Owen in that classic work said, A man may easier see without eyes, speak without a tongue, than truly mortify one sin without the Spirit. So what does it mean? What does it mean to put to death sin by the Spirit? Well, we could literally do an entire sermon on that. But for the sake of time, I just want to give one little thought. I want to go to a cross reference in Ephesians 6, 17 through 18. Most of us are familiar with this as the armor of God uh, section of Ephesians. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. First, I want you to notice the role of prayer in community. You're praying in or you're praying by the Spirit, and you're also making supplication for others. If you want to grow in godliness, if you want to mortify sin, you're going to need prayer, and you're going to need community. To fight sin, you don't roll up your sleeves. You fall down on your knees in humility and in community, and you ask for grace. You ask for help, you do so in the context of the local church, which is God's base of operations for His mission of sanctification. So prayer and community are essential in this battle, but notice the reference in Ephesians 6 to the sword of the Spirit. It says sword of the Spirit, cross-reference that sort of idea with Romans 8, which says put to death by the Spirit. I think there's a likely correlation there between the sword of the Spirit and putting to death by the Spirit. What is this sword according to Ephesians 6? It's the Word of God. If you want to strike down sin, this is the primary weapon. Without Scripture, you don't even have a fully reliable way of knowing what sin is. Kind of like if you've ever seen uh, any of the Lord of the Rings and uh, Frodo gets his sword, which I think he calls Stinger or something like that, and it glows blue whenever in the presence of orcs. That's what the Bible is for us. It it glows and warns us of the presence of sin and temptation and danger, whether it's against lust or pride or greed or legalism or moralism or racism or laziness or apathy or fear or anxiety or whatever it might be, the Word of God is the weapon that you wield against it. Not cliches, not platitudes like God helps those who help themselves, not self help hints, or good old American grit. That's like bringing toothpicks to this sword fight. We need the promises and the warnings of Scripture. For every sin, for every single sin, there is a warning of Scripture and a corresponding promise for us to behold and believe. And by beholding and believing that promise and that warning, we thus behead sin. No one modeled this better than Jesus. He never sinned, but he was tempted. And when he's being tempted in the desert, notice he doesn't reach for cliches. He doesn't reach for empty platitudes. He reaches for the word of his Father. He reaches for God's promises and God's warnings. Sin promises this loaf of bread. But Jesus recognized, my Father promises a feast. Sin promises preservation but the father warns of presumption when temptation strikes jesus reaches for the sword of god's spirit the sword of the word why because he's a trusting son and so are we as we see in the next verse romans 8:14 through 15 for you are all for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is why those who put sin to death by the Spirit will live, because being led by the Spirit is evidence of sonship. And only the children of God shall live. So sanctification flows out of sonship. It flows out of our already existing relationship with God. This is why we talked about before, justification precedes sanctification. So let's begin by asking what Paul means by all who are led by the Spirit. Now, this isn't just some hyper spiritual sort of thing. I'm not denying that the Spirit leads and directs His people, but Romans 8 isn't talking about that sort of subjective feeling of being led. In the context, it's just another way of saying those who Walk according to the Spirit, or those who live according to the Spirit. Each of those phrases are just different ways of expressing the same sort of idea. To be in the Spirit is to walk according to the Spirit, which is to be led by the Spirit. Again, Paul isn't intending to show different ways that believers might or might not live. Some believers are led by the Spirit, some believers aren't led by the Spirit. That's not Paul's point at all. That might be true in some sense in other contexts, but not at all. As Paul intends here in Romans 8, this isn't about the different ways that believers live. It's about how differently believers and unbelievers live. Unbelievers live in and under sin, while believers are sons. If you are led by the Spirit, then you are a son of God. And if you are a son of God, then you are led by the Spirit. So let's talk for a second about what it means to be sons of God or daughters of God. Pause doesn't include that, not because he's just a big sexist or something like that. The reason that he doesn't mention that is because he wants to retain this unique imagery of union with Christ that we've talked about before in Romans 5, 6, 7, and into uh, chapter 8. In fact, this idea of union with Christ is going to permeate the entire New Testament. It's kind of the fountainhead from which all of the blessings uh, are going to flow to us. And so he wants to retain this imagery. Jesus is the true son of God, capital S, so we are little s, sons of God. That's why he wants to retain this sort of imagery. Jesus is the unique son of God who cried out, Abba, Father. So we are the lowercase sons of God who cry out, Abba, Father. And this concept of sonship is revolutionary. In fact, the great J.I. Packer once wrote in his famous work, Knowing God, You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Let that sink in for a second. In 2008, I went to a pastor's conference in Minneapolis. The the conference was called The Pastor as Father and Son, and during that conference, I listened to speaker after speaker after speaker describe the fatherhood of of God. And there in Minneapolis, I realized I struggled mightily to relate to God as Father. Lord, King, God, Sovereign, Savior, these sorts of ideas made sense to me. I could even wrap my mind around them, maybe even wrap my heart around them. But the idea of God as fatherhood was somewhat foreign to me. So that set me on this path of really setting my mind to consider the topic of the fatherhood of God. I began studying Scripture on this topic. I read books and articles and listened to all the sermons that I could find. You ever put a coin in a vending machine and nothing happens? You press a button and nothing happens whatsoever, and so you begin to shake the vending machine or you kick it or whatever it might be in order to really get that, whatever it is that you're trying to get out of it, a Coke or some chips or something like that. Well, that's kind of what has happened to me a number of times in my life when it comes to certain doctrines. They're inserted in there. I'm a student. I've been to seminary. I've been a pastor for a while. This doctrine will be inserted into the vending machine of my heart. And yet, for whatever reason, it doesn't fall. There's no fruit. There's no reward that comes from it. Well, this season for me was a season, as I began to reflect upon the fatherhood of God, it was a season when that coin all of a sudden fell for the first time, and my life was changed. As I began to embrace the fatherhood of God, my grip on sin loosened. i mentioned it before. It was this season, which for the first time in my life, I experienced some degree of freedom in regards to my overwhelming, debilitating fear of public speaking. It was this season when I first felt truly free in, in regards to greater victory as it came to lust, and fear, and anxiety, and pride. Now, I still struggle with all of those things, and yet my struggle is profoundly different now. In fact, I would say there is no area of my life that wasn't somehow affected by this season of contemplating the fatherhood of God. You see, there's this principle in, uh, in nature that we see, and that is that sons resemble their fathers. Sometimes that's a physical resemblance. Sometimes it's a disposition, or temper, or the way they talk, or what they're interested in, or whatever it might be. Maybe it's their vocation. For thousands of years, if your father was a carpenter, you were going to be a carpenter. If he was a lawyer, you're going to be studying law. Sons take after their fathers. Well, likewise, our Father is holy. So Scripture says that we are becoming like Him. 1 John 3, 2, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. As we behold Him, we become more and more like Him. In beholding, we are becoming. So, Paul says that we are sons of God. If you love and trust Jesus, you are a son of God, but not through biological descent, rather through adoption, according to this verse. By the way, this really relates to what we talked about last week in theological equipping. Adoption is yet another sign of this grand, great doctrine, this reality of the doctrine of uh, election. We have a handful of kids in this room who were adopted. My dad was adopted, my dad's dad was adopted. And one of the interesting things about adoption is uh, adopted kids don't choose their parents. Their parents choose them. Well, likewise, God chooses His children. In fact, that connection between election and adoption is made explicit in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And because we are adopted, because we are beloved children, we cry out, Abba, Father, just like God's beloved son. By the way, Abba is the Aramaic word for father. You might have heard before that it means something like the cooing of a child. Uh, You might have heard before that it means something like daddy, although most scholars would say that's probably a little bit too informal of a translation uh, of it. It is a term of intimacy, but not quite that uh, casual. Regardless, I don't think Paul's point here is to give us two different names or some sort of magical formula, his point is for it to connect in our minds with the same cry of Christ. As Christ cries out, Abba, Father, so we cry out, Abba, Father. This cry of Abba, Father, this exclamation of sonship, it becomes a distinctive badge, a shibboleth, if you will. You see, my daughter Larkin, she can call me dad, she can call me father, she can even call me daddy, But Judah Lee can't, and Haddon Hollis can't, and Taylor Brower can't, and every time he tries, it's really awkward for everybody. But because we're sons, we're adopted by our Father, we cry out to Him. As Jesus not only modeled this, but also commanded of us, we cry out to our Father. He hears us because He's a good Father who always and only gives good gifts to His children. You'll notice that oftentimes in the way that I pray it's from Matthew 7, 7-11. through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who, knocks, who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? Listen to this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? By the way, maybe what you need to cry out this morning is what we talked about in the previous verses. Father, help me mortify my flesh. Help me put this sin to death. Help me wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Help me to believe Your promises and warnings. Last section, Romans 8, 16-17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Well, decades ago, when one of my uh, dad's relatives passed away, he left an inheritance for uh, my aunt and for my uncle, but not for my dad. The reason that he didn't for my dad was because my dad was adopted, he was not accepted. Maybe you've heard stories like that of an adopted son or a daughter being treated as second class. Well, that completely undermines the meaning of adoption, both in our culture and also in this sort of theological uh, usage. There are no second-rate sons or daughters in the church. There are no stepsister Cinderella's forced to serve while the others feast. If children, then heirs. Adoption leads to inheritance. Inheritance. Why? Again, because of this reality of union with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ, but He is the true and rightful heir. Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, Christ is the true offspring. Christ is the true heir, the one to whom all of the promises are made. Which is why Second Corinthians will say, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. Jesus is the heir. He is the offspring to whom all the promises are made and in whom all the promises are fulfilled. All of them. Every single one of them. There is no promise that God's children receive. That, don't, that doesn't flow to us through Jesus. Every sliver or ounce or hint of blessing or grace or mercy is yours only because of Christ. I think marriage is a really good illustration of this. Imagine that you have these really wealthy parents, and you are an heir of their great, vast estate. And then you marry. Well, all of a sudden, now your spouse, by virtue of your relationship with them, becomes a co-heir along with you. There are no prenups in the kingdom, by the way, because Christ never divorces his bride. Since we are the bride of Christ, the church becomes co-heirs. Heirs Heirs of what, you might ask? Everything. Heirs of everything. Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You ever see a movie where a king looks out over his, the glory of his nation and he tells his son, someday this will all be yours. Or as Mufasa tells Simba, everything the light touches is our kingdom. Well, that's what our father does. He looks out over the expanse of the world and says, someday this will all be yours. Every joy, every righteous passion and pleasure, everything noble and good it is all ours in Christ someday it will be yours if you are a son and therefore put sin to death and by the way if you suffer which seems like a really really hard turn from glory and inheritance to suffering I just have one thought that I want to share as it relates to suffering and then we're going to pick this up again next week there is no glorification there is no reward There is no inheritance apart from suffering. It's one of the reasons that we here at Parkway are so passionately, so adamantly opposed to any so-called prosperity gospel, which is no gospel whatsoever. Those who teach that if you just love Jesus, if you just have enough faith that you won't suffer, they're false teachers. They're heretics. There is a day coming when there will be no more suffering. But that day is in the future, and it will always be in the future until Christ returns and we're resurrected. That future day of resurrection and our present suffering is what our text is about next week. So I want to pray for us, and we'll pick it up there next Sunday. Father, again, I thank you for this text. I thank you for just all of the different heights within it, the call for us to put sin to death, the reminder that we are sons and daughters of God, the reminder of future glorification, the reminder of our inheritance and our adoption, and also the reality of suffering. Just looking around the room, even as we pray, knowing that there are various tribulations and trials being experienced by our people. And so I pray for your grace and your mercy to them, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe that you are a good father and you give good gifts to your children and that might be the foundation that might free us to be able to put sin to death and to experience sanctification as an outworking of our sonship. We pray these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.